Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. Would you turn your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3? We are headed back together today. It's been a while since we've been in our series, 1 Timothy. We're working our way through the pastoral epistles. And uh, we're grateful that we can share this time together. Let me start this morning here with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you today as your people, and we know who we were. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were all once walking, following the course of the world, children of wrath feeding the desires of the body and the mind. And we were without hope in ourselves, slaves to sin. But You, Heavenly Father, You are rich in mercy because of the great love with which You have loved us. And You raised us up and seated us in heavenly places with Christ. You have commanded that we would be born anew, born from above, given life within. We're grateful for what You have done in us through Your Holy Spirit. Even when we were dead, You raised us up with Christ. And so, Father, we, we look at what You have done in us and we know that it is not by works of righteousness, but according to Your mercy. We know that it is by grace through faith And so we don't have anything to boast in apart from You, apart from the work of the cross that the workers just sung about. Father, the cross is our boast. Christ is our boast. You and Your grace are our boast. And Father, we are grateful and we are eager to know more about the work of Your grace in our lives, what You have done to to raise us to heavenly places, to bring us to spiritual life. We're eager to know more about the good works that You have planned for us to walk in so that we can bring You glory. Thank You, Heavenly Father, for making us Your workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, as we walk through again, we work our way through the pastoral epistles, help us to see and understand even a little better this morning Your plans for us as the body of Christ, individually, corporately. Help us to see Your purposes, Your mission in the world through the church. And energize us by Your Spirit to walk in the plans that You have for us. And we pray these things for Your glory. In the name of Jesus, Amen. I want to read some texts to you by way of introduction this morning that have to do with the church. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Later on in Ephesians 2, Paul writes, So then, 
you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Listen to the words of Peter as he describes the church. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, he writes, As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you, yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Do you know that the church is at the center of what God is doing in the world today? You know, sometimes we think about many different options that God might use to proclaim the Gospel throughout the world and make disciples. And what you see all throughout the New Testament is at the center of that redemptive plan is the church of Jesus Christ. Christ is building His church today. But you know what? We are not the architects of the church, are we? You look back through these texts I read and what are we called? What part do we play in this? We're not the architects of the church. We're not the builders of the church. Christ is. He is the architect. He said, remember, I will build my church. Sometimes we think that it's us who builds the church. And we don't. Jesus is the risen, ascended, reigning Christ. And here's the other part I want to stress with us today as we, as we go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, is that there are more aspects of the Gospel than just that Christ died on the cross. That's the pinnacle. That's the main aspect of the Gospel. But do you know, there's the life of Christ. right? We talk about this all the time here. The life of Christ provides His people with righteousness so that they stand clothed before God in perfect righteousness. His death, right? It removes our guilt. It absorbs our punishment. His resurrection gives us life, spiritual and eternal. But there's more to the Gospel than that. Remember, Christ ascended. And right now, He is in session Christ is living. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's in session. And what does He say He's doing? He's praying. He's interceding. He's reigning through His Spirit. He sent His Spirit to live in believers like you and me. And He's accomplishing His purposes in us. Do you ever think about that? He's the King. He's the King of His church. He's the Lord of His church. 
And he's busy. He's accomplishing every one of his plans for discipleship and, and gospel growth in the world for His glory, for the glory of His Father. We can depend on what Christ is doing right now as our Savior. Remember His, his high priestly prayer in John 17? He prayed, Sanctify them through the truth. Thy word is truth. Make them one. Keep them. Guard them. That's, that's the life of Christ right now. He's praying for every one of His own. And we are being kept. We are being guarded. We are being sanctified. We are being developed and grown. He's active in our lives. He's reigning supreme right now through the Holy Spirit accomplishing His purposes. He is building His church one person at a time as He indwells His people. What are we? We're the stones. That's what the text calls us. right? We're the stones. We're the, we're the stones being built together. We're the members that He has called out of the world and, and set in place in the building of His church for His purposes and His glory. Every aspect of the functioning of the church is to be completely submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ. And it is. And, and, and we are to submit ourselves completely to the instructions that He has laid out for us in His Word. This is the master plan right here. The Word of Christ. And, and He is reigning through us and accomplishing His purposes. That is what the Holy Spirit fills us and enables us to do and empowers us to do. The Holy Spirit doesn't empower men's plans for the glory of men, even though sometimes those may look quite impressive. The Holy Spirit empowers the plans of Christ for the glory of Christ. The spiritual effectiveness and eternal success of a local church is realized and enjoyed as God's people being filled with the Spirit of Christ are walking in the will of Christ as revealed in His Word. And this is why the Apostle Paul wrote the letter of 1 Timothy. Look carefully with me again at the purpose statement of this letter. This verse, do you remember which one it is? It's been a while. Which verse is the key to understanding 1 Timothy? It's 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and through 16. Would you look at those verses with me? And Lord willing, we'll be looking at them specifically and exegetically in the next few weeks. But Paul writes, he tells us his purpose in this letter. He says, verse 14, 1 Timothy 3, 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that, there's our, there's our indicator of purpose, right? So that, Light bulbs come on. Okay, why, Paul, are you writing this? So that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. There it is. There's Paul's purpose statement. So that we may know how we ought to behave in the household of God. What a glorious title is given to us there. We're God's house. And, and, and the church of the living God. And He calls us, here, here's more of our role in the world as Christ, the risen, ascended Christ, builds us together. We are here to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. To, to hold on to truth. To hold it up. To proclaim it. To keep it. It's once forever delivered to the saints. And as we come this morning to 
verses 8 to 13, we begin to realize that a vitally important part of the building of Christ's church is the affirmation of the offices that God has appointed for His church. And in our text, so far we've noticed that there's two, and there's only two. There's two offices that God has given to His church. What are they? Elder and deacon. We've already looked extensively at elder in in the in past weeks, and this morning we're going to begin to look at this office of deacon. Just just a quick, quick review of what we've been through so far in First Timothy. Paul begins just where he ought to in the letter, as we're discovering how ought we to behave in the household of God. Paul begins with the message of the church. He says, first of all, you've got to get the message right. You can have all the organizational structure down in a church. It can be looking, it can be looking very nicely. But if the message is wrong, if, if the gospel isn't there, what's the point? Right? It can be packed with people, and if the message is wrong, what's the point? So that's where Paul starts in chapter 1. He's, you've got to get the message right. And so he begins by correcting false doctrine and then teaching sound doctrine. Beloved church, let us always make that our priority with one another. As you hear one another and encourage one another in the words of God, sharpen one another and help one another grow in the purity of the Gospel. There's nothing more precious than that as you share it with your children. Talk about it amongst yourselves. Paul says the message is first and foremost the most important part. Correcting false doctrine and teaching sound doctrine. Then he moves in chapter 2 to the members of the church and he talks about the role of men and the role of women and then in chapter 3 the role of elders and now we're going to talk about the role of deacons. Jesus Christ is positioning all of these parts of His church, all these members together, and it's all according to His plan and for His purposes in the world. All of it's extremely important for the maturing of the church and the mission of the church. This is the Word of God. This is God's plan for His church. Well, let's read the text together this morning. Would you stand with me as we read this out of respect for the Word of God? And, and then we'll sit down again and and we'll, we'll talk about it together. I would like to read together in unison 1 Timothy 3, 8-13. through And uh, I'm not seeing it up there. Is it coming? <laughs> Alright, hopefully you've got your Bible and then we'll, we'll read these verses together. 1 Timothy 3, We'll start in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Thank you. Please be seated. The main idea of this text, and you can see it in your 
in your outline there that I've given to you in your bulletin, the main idea is this, and it's really very similar to what we worded as the main idea for elders, is because the office of deacon is a critical role in the body of Christ, we must affirm only the men whom the Holy Spirit has chosen. Because the office of deacon is a critical role in the body of Christ, we must affirm only the men whom the Holy Spirit has chosen. Now this morning, I don't think I'm going to get too far beyond our introduction. If you notice in your outline there, I have four introductory points. I kind of want to set us up to go in and talk about the qualifications of a deacon. So first of all, let's talk a minute about the meaning of the title deacon. I think it's very important that we understand this. Deacon. The title comes from a word that simply means servant. Did you know that? Servant. That's wrapped up entirely in the idea of this word. Servant. Service. To serve. In fact, it's a very common word with a very general meaning all throughout the New Testament. Basically, what the authors of our Bible did is they took that word when it when we came to it in first timothy 3 8 and they transliterated it they really took the letters from the greek language and put them right over into english and came up with the word deacon deacon the the, the greek word is diakonos right sounds just like so so but the word actually means if you were to translate it it's just servant service serving And the only two texts in the New Testament that this word comes across as an official title that we know for sure is an official title is Philippians 1.1. It says, Paul, Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with overseers and deacons. Same word. And then this text here, 1 Timothy 3.8-13. But everywhere else that this word appears, deacon, It's translated servant, service, serving. Or sometimes it's translated uh, um, ministry or administration or something like this. And so in both of those texts, it's simply transliterated into our language. So the meaning of that word is service and serving. And that's very important, I think. Very, very important for our comprehension of normal life in the body of Christ and the role of a deacon. I think it's important that we understand. Servant, service. The the word is used at least a hundred times in the New Testament and describes all different kinds of service. Sometimes it's translated serve, other times minister. Let me give you some examples. Let me just show you from the New Testament some examples of the general use of this word. In the Gospels and Acts, it's used for angels ministering to Jesus. Remember when Jesus was taken out in the wilderness and tempted there and He was hungry and exhausted? Well, angels came and ministered to Him. Same word. Peter's mother was sick. Or maybe she... Yeah, yeah, she was very sick. And Jesus, Jesus healed her. And she got up and served a meal. Same word. Followers of Jesus Christ ministered to one another by, by giving clothing and food and aiding the sick and visiting in prison. Remember that text Jesus said? If you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. 
When did we do it unto you? When you fed and clothed and visited in prison and all those. That same word. Servant. Serving. The women who ministered to Jesus and His disciples during the earthly ministry. Same word. Martha. Serving a meal at her house and also Simon's house. Same word. In Acts chapter 6, seven Spirit-filled men were chosen to make sure widows received food. They served tables. Remember that? Acts chapter 6, 1-6. through Same idea. The apostles were then free to minister the Word of God and to pray for their people. Same word. Uh, By the way, some people say that in Acts chapter 6, those seven men set apart to serve tables were the first deacons. But I don't know how we can actually confirm that. It's simply that they were set apart for a task and they served just like the apostles did as well. We look in the epistles and we see the word used for lots of different things as well. Church leaders and delegates were administering monetary gifts from one church to another. Administering, same word. Onesimus, remember that slave that ran away from Philemon? He served Paul while in prison with him. Same idea, same word. The Old Testament writers of Scripture, it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, served New Testament believers by writing down the prophecies of Christ. Same word. Believers generally serve one another in the name of Christ. The ministry of church leaders is service to their people. In fact, in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Peter 4, both of those texts employ this word as a spiritual gift given by the Holy Spirit to believers and exercised by believers in the body of Christ. And and the reason why I listed all those, I just want you to see there's a wide variety of services that this word is used to describe. It encompasses basically any kind of service in the New Testament to people, to the people of Christ, and to the Lord, uh, from, from serving food at tables to ministering the Word of God. And so understanding that, that that the title deacon is really all about service and serving, that helps us to be ready to hear this second introductory point, and that this kind of service should be the pursuit of every member of the body of Christ. That's what we see as we look over the, the array of the ways that service is used. Loving, sacrificial service ought to be the Spirit-filled pursuit and passion of every believer in the body of Christ. In fact, I'll share some texts with you that show this, but we could say this, loving, sacrificial service is the hallmark of genuine Christianity. We must all understand clearly that loving, sacrificial service in the body of Christ is not unique to the elders or deacons. It's used all over the New Testament for for any kind of service the believers would do for one another. It's the pursuit of every member of Christ's church in the strength with which God supplies. However, I think a lot of people today kind of have maybe this mindset. Elders teach. They got their job. Deacons serve. They got their job. Everyone else just attends and watches. There's some people that think that way. I'm just going to show up. 
No, that is not what we see in the New Testament. That is not God's and Christ's purpose as, as they build the church together. A thriving local church is one in which everyone is lovingly, sacrificially seeking to serve one another in all kinds of ways. There's no such thing as a spectator believer mentioned in the New Testament. Our Lord calls everyone to serve from the most menial tasks, and that's really the origin of the word deacon. Serving tables. From the most menial tasks to the most dignified ones and everything in between. Remember the words of Jesus, our Master, when when He was training His disciples for ministry? Think of this. Mark 10, 42-45. Listen carefully. This is one of the most precious texts about service. Jesus called them. He called His disciples to Him. And He said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Isn't that instructive? Boy, sometimes we are tempted to come into a body of a church and say, hey, I want... I want a position. Have you seen my resume? And that's, that's exactly opposite to, to the way things work in the body of Christ. That's why it's such a blessing when, when, when some of you have come in from other places and said, hey, how can I serve? Oh, that's great. Praise the Lord for that. The Spirit of God is at work in us. That's, that's what Jesus calls for. A slave of all. What can I do? Every, think of everybody in the body of Christ is, is looking for ways to serve one another. That's how a church thrives. And they're empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that. And it's, not, it's nothing planned necessarily, right? Nothing on a rotation schedule or anything like that. It's just looking for the needs of one another to meet. I have been so blessed by you in that in so many ways. Think of this text as well. John 13, 12-17. When He had washed their feet, right? Jesus washed His disciples' feet. That's about the most menial task that, that the New Testament talks about. And who did it? Jesus. The Creator of the heaven and earth. I love how, I can't remember who wrote that, maybe Oswald Cham- Chambers or Sanders or one of those authors said, he, he held the universe in one hand and washed Judas's feet with the other. Isn't that something? Jesus was a slave of all. He gave His life as a ransom. When He had washed their feet and put on His outer garments and resumed His place, He said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Think about that. Put yourself there in the upper room with Jesus. And you're seeing Him wash His disciples' feet. And He looks at them and He says, do you understand what I've just done to you? It was so much more. So much more than just getting the dirt off of their feet so that they could have dinner. He was teaching them how to live with one another. You call me teacher and Lord, Jesus says, and you're right, for so I am. 
If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so also ought so you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And of course, he said then later that this was, again, this was our hallmark. This is the, this is the marking quality about a genuine believer. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. Here's how you know what a true disciple looks like if you have this kind of love for one another, this sacrificial loving service. That's the calling of every believer. Well, then what's the difference? If, if this is the calling of every believer in the body of Christ, what's the difference between any believer and a deacon then? Well, we might think of the differences in service this way. Everyone serves, just like the New Testament calls us to. Everyone serves. Many are uniquely gifted in service. And I think we've all found this to be true. You can see, for example, in Romans 12, 7, 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11, that some are uniquely given gifts of service. Everyone seeks to serve. Everyone seeks to look at one another and identify needs to meet and to, in our best of our ability, to meet those needs. It's constant, it's spontaneous, it's, it's empowered by the Spirit. But then some in the body of Christ are uniquely gifted to do that, to see and to meet those needs. And some then are appointed by the Holy Spirit to be deacons because they're models of loving sacrificial service in the body of Christ. They have been enabled in their service to be an example for other believers to follow. That's God's design. That's God's grace at work. That's the Spirit of God appointing them for the office of deacon. Now, not only are deacons a model and an example for other believers to follow in their activities, in their service activities, but more importantly, and here's where we look at our third introductory point, they're also to be an example as they serve in their character. This is incredibly important for us to understand as we come into this text this morning. The third, the third introductory point the most important consideration is what? Character. Character. What is always the primary consideration when identifying church leadership? It's character. Whether elders or deacons, whether, whether here in 1 Timothy or elsewhere like Titus, character is always the first and foremost important consideration. Christ-like ministry always flows out of Christ-like character. Christ-like ministry will not come from worldly character. This is really the principle that Jesus taught in Matthew 7, 15-20. Do you remember that text? Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their what? Their fruits. 
are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. There's the idea. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. The fruit of a person's life will be the direct product of their character. The character that God has developed in their life by His grace. Character is always the most important consideration. Have you noticed that as you look through these texts? Sometimes you might read the the description of the qualifications of an elder or deacon. It's like, aren't they leaving some stuff out? You would be amazed. Maybe you're, maybe you're not amazed. Some of the lists I've gotten as um, different folks have tried to evaluate church leadership, and you see things like entrepreneurial skills, um, salesmanship, you know, I mean, just stuff. Like, where does that come from? Notice that qualities which often achieve worldly success are not included in these lists. Have you noticed that? Sense of humor, good oratory skills, good salesmanship, good looking, entrepreneurial skills, etc. These qualities may have the ability to persuade men to buy something, but they have no power to influence men to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has chosen to use the message of the gospel communicated through Christ-like character to accomplish that. It's the power of God that saves, not the skills of men. We've got it wrong so often about what we look for when we say that person's going to be effective in the church. Look at what the Scripture lays out as the qualifications. We can't take our cue from modern business models when we're looking at the growth and the development of Christ's church. Remember, He's building His church. We're not. He's the architect. Notice that the New Testament doesn't suggest we give someone a position so that they will become faithful to attend church or or become reliable in their service or develop godly character. That's happened before too, very often. You know, in, in, in a church, you know, probably maybe even sometimes a temptation, especially in a smaller church, you want to see people come and be faithful. You think, well, maybe it'll help them be faithful if we make them a deacon. That's not right. right? That will get us in trouble. Giving people positions so that they will become faithful? No, as we'll see in this text, they're to be tested when? First. Then approved as the deacon. Oh, it's so important that we understand this. The character consideration comes first before affirmation as an elder or deacon. Godly character is the test. This is what Jesus has taught us in this. And again, notice that each of these qualifications given for elders or or given for the deacons and their wives are are not only qualities that a deacon and their wives are to pursue. I just want to mention that as well. We've talked about that with the elder. Just like the qualifications for an elder, these are character qualities that every Christian man, every believer in the body of Christ is to pursue. You look at each one of these. And you will find them commanded and encouraged and exhorted of every believer elsewhere in the New Testament. So then what's the difference again? Well, the, all these standards of character are all of our, our pursuit, if we're a believer. But for a deacon or an elder, they 
must have a testimony. They must have a, a reputation, the text tells us, for growing and, and developing in these areas. The standard's the same. The accountability is higher. That's a good way to think about it. The standard's the same for everybody, but when, when you're a deacon or an elder, the accountability is higher. You must be exemplary in these things by the grace of God. So again, as we consider the building of Christ's church through the development of godly character, we have to understand that, that it is only by the grace of God and through the transforming power of God's Word that godly character is developed. We have to see that it is His work. It is God's work as we pursue this with our heart. And, and again, many of us, I think today, in, in Western modern America, we think backwards about um, progress and the growth of a local church. Sometimes a church will project a church growth plan and then work through phases of that church growth plan. Those phases have to do with programs often and buildings and dollars and numbers of people. So common, right? Church growth plan. And, and often what happens is, is as, as the leadership of that church will, will build a ministry idea and then they will find the people to put around that idea and make it all happen. And very often when the church growth plan becomes that vision, what ends up happening is that people without godly character are forced to hold up that plan and eventually it will collapse because it does not have the integrity of godly character. That happens so very often. We see it even on the news sometimes. And it becomes a disgrace to the name of Christ. We are not commanded by Christ to have a church growth plan or to build a church. Who's going to build his church? Christ will. That's what he said. I will build my church. That's what I do. We're commanded by him to teach his word. To be conformed to the image of Christ and love and serve one another. Do you know what the real church growth plan is? Go through the scriptures and let the Bible shape our lives. That's it. And that's how Christ builds His church because He builds godly character within us so that we serve and love one another in a way that brings Him glory. As we teach His Word and the Spirit works in our hearts and godly character is formed, Christ's people are matured. See, that's, that's the difference. We don't, we don't have a, a, a church growth plan idea and then try to make it happen. We let the Word of God wash over our lives and He grows us. And we become what He wants us to be. And then He develops His plan through us. It's all His work through the Spirit. Then those maturing believers become loving, sacrificial servants of Christ and of one another. And through them, the Spirit of Christ ministers powerfully. And the church is built that way. That's how Christ builds His church. Always through His Word and through His Spirit and through Christ-like people. And sometimes it'll take most of the time, it takes a long time. Because we grow like trees, don't we? Slow. Little bit by little bit. But who's the master builder? The ascended, reigning Christ. And He will not fail. He will not fail. And this is why godly character 
is the most important consideration when affirming elders and deacons. That's why these character qualities ought to be the passionate prayer and pursuit of each one of us by the grace which Christ supplies. This is where we know God is at work when Christ-like character is being developed. And it's, and it's the grace of God which brings us to our final introductory consideration this morning. Number four, the object of our confidence. What is the object of our confidence in all of this? Is it in people? Is it in a plan? No. Again, it's in the ascended Christ. I want you to get a hold of this. It will encourage you. It will strengthen you. Whether the character development of elders or the character development of deacons or the character development of each member of Christ's church, it's all entirely a work of God's grace. We cannot achieve any of this in our own strength. It is Christ who accomplishes these things in us, in His church. Jesus Christ is risen, ascended, and right now in session, building and maturing His church. He is interceding for us. He's reigning over us through His Spirit who indwells every believer. He is working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. He is keeping us. He is sanctifying us. He is appointing and gifting us. He is purifying and maturing us. He is empowering and leading us. I want to show you the connection. One of the most clear connections between the growth of the church and the power of the ascended Christ for a moment. Would you turn with me to, first, or to Ephesians chapter 4? This is one of the classic texts about the, the order of the church and what we are called to. And right in the middle of this text, we can see that our hope must be anchored in the ascended Christ. Ephesians 4. Verses 1-6 through six talk about the godly attitudes that promote unity and growth in the church. And then in verse 7, we see this connection with all of the workings of the church with the power of the ascended Christ. Look at this. Verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us. Every believer according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, this is why it says, each believer has been gifted grace from Christ to accomplish His plan in the church. That's why it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. In saying He ascended, what does it mean but that He also descended in the lower regions of the earth? He who also descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that He might fill all things. And then He gives apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers and so on to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Did you see the connection in that text with the ascended Christ? Christ came. He first descended. He, lived, he accomplished the works of the Gospel. He lived a perfect life. He died in our place. He rose again. Then He ascended. And when He ascended, He sat in the seat of Lord of all. Right? Philippians 2. He is Lord of all. And from that position of power and authority, He's giving to each one of us in the church everything we need to be who He's called us to be. 
So that, look at that. I love that phrase right at the end of verse 10. So that He might fill all things. That's glorious. Everything that is happening in the true church of Jesus Christ, He is filling it with His power, with His gifts, with His grace, with His enablement. He's moving it along. We cannot achieve any of this in our own strength. We rest entirely upon the power of the risen Christ, the ascended Christ. Don't just think of Christ as one who finished His work on earth and then is sitting around twiddling His thumbs. He is busy now, saving, empowering, developing, enabling. Philippians 2, 12-13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. I keep, I keep reminding you of these verses, and I will, to the day I die, I'll not stop. Yes, we are to work and labor and serve, but it is God who works in you. It is Christ who is at work in you. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Soak in these verses. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, so we're talking about the, the risen Christ, and, and from that position, He is the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. May He then equip you with everything good that you may do His will. Equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So let us work it out. Let us labor faithfully, but depend entirely upon Him. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And this is very much true for the affirmation of men to the office of deacon as well. In fact, this is how we know this, this godly character being developed in us, that, that's how we know whom God has chosen for the office of deacon. The people of the church never choose their deacons. I keep stressing this as well with us as we consider the offices. Let's get our words right when we talk about these things. It's helped us to understand what's going on in, in, in the workings of Christ. We never choose elders or deacons. Never. We simply recognize those in whom the grace of God is at work to qualify them and therefore appoint them to the office of deacon. The Holy Spirit appoints a man through the gracious development of his character and the church affirms that man as we recognize the character that the grace of God has developed within Him. If we understand that it's the risen Christ and His grace at work in us, and we're looking for what He's doing, then we'll recognize that character and affirm it. Now that brings us back to our text, 1 Timothy 3, 8-13. And the main question that we should be asking of the text is this. How then does a church go about affirming the men that God has chosen for the office of deacon? How do we do that then? If it's Christ's work, if it's all of grace, if, if all these things are true, character is foremost, how do, we, how do we do that? Well, this text gives us five points that will answer this question. We're not going to get into this today. I'll just 
Get us almost there, and then we'll share time at the Lord's table together this morning. And you can see those five things, those five things that we look for in your outline there, in your, in your notes, in your bulletin. Number one, evaluate the personal character of the prospective deacon. And we're given five qualities from verses 8 through 9 that we have to understand. Because we're all going to take part of this. This is going to be a normal activity for us as a local body of Christ. It's not just elders or other deacons that affirm deacons. It's all of us. Evaluate the personal character of the prospective deacon. Verses 8 and 9. Second, employ the testing of the prospective deacon. Employ the testing. It says they must first be tested. That's verse 10. Number three, evaluate the wife of the prospective deacon. That's verse 11. Number four, evaluate the relational character of the prospective deacon. That's verse 12. And then finally, envision the gain of the faithful deacon. Verse 13. Now, I'm just going to make a few more comments on verse 1, and then we'll, we'll close in prayer. Or uh, point 1, and then close in prayer. I'm going to set this up for next week. Number 1, evaluate the personal character of the prospective deacon. As we look at each one of these qualifications, I think it's important that we keep in mind what kind of service is involved with the deacon. If we keep some of the deacon's services in mind, it will help us to see the wisdom of these qualifications and how they're applied in real life situations. I want, will, you help, will you help us do that as we think through this? We're gonna, I'm going to explain that a little bit more, but I want us to keep that in mind. As we look through these qualifications, think, well, why these ones? And if we understand what a deacon does, it will help us to see their importance and their wisdom. So what is the service of a deacon? Well, if the elders are called by God to serve by teaching and guiding the people of God, the deacons are called by God to serve the people of God as they assist the elders in the hands-on, practical application of their teaching and guidance. For example, and this is where we go back to Acts 6. Would you turn back there with me for just a moment? Acts 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit, and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Acts is a very encouraging book to read. When we see, when we walk in God's ways, He 
grows his church. Okay, so what does a deacon do? The principle there is very simple. The elders of the church are called to minister the word and pray, to shepherd people and pray for them. And so then they need help to carry out all of the hands-on practical ministry of the church, of which there is so much to do. Those seven men met physical needs of people in the body of Christ so that the apostles could be devoted to the ministry of the Word and prayer. A deacon is an exemplary servant of Christ and His people, and therefore he assists the elders by administrating and carrying out the practical services of the people of the church and its various ministry. A deacon may serve by even discovering and meeting the practical personal needs of an individual in the body. Sometimes he'll communicate those to the leadership and then execute the plan for meeting those needs. Maybe he'll be called upon to meet the practical needs of the meeting place or even someone's home, a member of the body that needs some practical help in that way. There's so many things. I mean, we could just endlessly list things that, that, that could be done. He'll call upon to handle the movement of money for the meeting of personal and ministry needs. We see that in the New Testament. Maybe he'll be called upon to organize other members of the church for service in ministry. Maybe he'll be called upon to serve God's people through music or technology or facility or food or clothes or visitation or anything that forwards the work of God and serves the people of God and brings glory to God. Countless ways. Seeking to apply the teaching of the Word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so doing that frees elders to focus on the ministry of the Word and prayer. That is incredibly important. That each person do the work that God has called them to and focus on it. So with that service in mind, then what qualifications will be evident in a man whom the Spirit has chosen to be a deacon? Well, that's where we'll pick up next time together, Lord willing. Well, let's pray. Would you stand with me? And we'll share at the Lord's table together. Next week, we'll look at the qualifications. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we embark on this new section of Scripture together, that it will be sealed to our hearts and our consciences. And that by Your grace, through the power that You are extending to us from Your place of Lordship, that You will work these things out for Your glory and our good. Thank You that You have appointed people in our church to be who You have called them to be. We pray that You would enable us to recognize that and to submit ourselves to what You are doing so that Your will is accomplished in us and through us for Your glory. And Father, as we seek to become more clear in our thinking about how You are building Your church, help us also to see that You will do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think according to the power at work in us that Christ would be glorified in us forever and ever. Father, help us, strengthen us, enable us, change us, and and may, may Your will be done. We pray in the name of Jesus, Your Son. Amen. Let's sing a song together and then we'll...
we'll share time at the table. What a friend for sinners Jesus, lover of my soul Friends may fail me, foes assail me He, my Savior, makes me
Let me say, if, if you weren't able to get a, a communion server, there's still some out in the foyer, I'm sure. And uh, even while I'm talking here, you can, if you haven't got one, you'd like to share this with us, please feel free to get up and, and get one and come back in. It's, it's absolutely fine. Thank you. Before we can share the Lord's table together, I always want to remind you who can come, who can celebrate the table of the Lord. And the answer is simple. Those who are trusting in the work of Jesus Christ alone. This table is not for perfect people because then nobody would come. Right? This table is for those who are trusting in Christ alone and are seeking to walk in repentance. That's important too. Sometimes a believer may come to the place where they say, you know, I, I cannot forgive this person. I will not or I can't let this sin go, and we're just harboring that bitterness or, or covering that sin in our hearts. And it doesn't mean you're not a believer. It just means you're unrepentant right now. And so that's not the time to celebrate this table either. It's the time to listen, though. So if you're here today, and you don't know the Lord, or you're trusting in something in addition to Christ, or something other than Christ, or you're harboring sin in your heart or bitterness, listen to the gospel Let the word of the cross melt your heart so that you can come to Christ again with an open heart, trusting and repenting. Let me give you just a few moments to examine your own heart before the Lord. As we fellowship at the Lord's table this morning and remember together the body and the blood of our Lord and remind one another of He is coming soon, I have a specific topic that I just want to focus on with a few verses. And it's this, that the cross purchased heaven for us. And the reason my heart was drawn to that theme this week for communion it's because we've had two funerals in the last couple of weeks. And I just want to remind you what Jesus has done to secure heaven for us. That's a sweet truth to remember. So as we take the bread and remember the body, I, I want to read to you just, just a couple of verses. John 17, 1 through 4, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's a simple connection. Jesus says the hour has come. What's the hour? The hour of the cross. The hour of his suffering. The hour of his absolute humiliation. And what did that win for us? It won for us the opportunity, the, 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 the gift of eternal life. And what is, he, what is, the, what is the, the core of eternal life? To know God. 
to be in the presence of Christ forever. That's what Christ did for us when we went to the hour. He bought for us eternal relationship in heaven with himself and with his Father.